Brilliant. As I was saying, I was really impressed with some of the plans that you came up with uh, to try and get yourselves out of trouble with uh, just a few bits and pieces. Uh, but I have to say there's only one group of people who are the best at coming up with a plan to escape with just bits and pieces. And that's the A-team. The A-team, I've always loved the A-team. This is something of my childhood. Saturday night, bath night. We used to bath once a week back then. Uh, there was no hot water, kids. just the way it was, you know. Um, bath night and then sit down and watch Hannibal, Murdoch, Face, and of course B.A. Baracus teach a group of baddies a lesson they would never forget. I didn't care that they only had one car stunt. Like that. I didn't care that nobody ever seemed to get shot, despite the fact they would empty machine guns at each other. And I didn't care that the baddie always locked them up in a garage full of equipment so that they could escape in a homemade tank. And then I discovered they were going to make a film about it. How excited was I? The A-Team, I just love them. To be honest though, I was a bit disappointed by the film. I suppose it was a bit slick compared to the TV series. But I don't, also, I don't like the tagline, there is no plan B. I'm a big fan of plan B. I love to have a plan B. I suppose it's because I like to be in control to never find myself in a position where I'm at the mercy of circumstances. Let me explain a little. If I go around to someone's house for a meal, I'm always aware of what the takeaway options are post-visit, just in case. You know, portions are too small, not a problem. Nibbles Pizza can cover it. The meal is seafood or riddled with garlic, time for a chip stop on the way home. Plan B comes to the rescue. As a parent, I've had to have a plan B, C and D as a black backup to plan A when I go out with my kids, particularly when they were younger. Car sickness, rain, wet pants, usually the kids, um, all have the ability to ruin your day if you don't have options. Colonel Hannibal Smith from the A-Team loves a plan, but have you ever noticed that it is usually plan A that has wound them up in that garage filled with sheet metal, a welding torch, some old sticks of dynamite and a battered up milk float? It is plan B, however, and a bit of B.A. Baracus magic that saves the day, turning a hopeless situation into a success and, promising that, and, prom and prompting that famous line, I love it when a plan comes together. The world tells us that having a plan B is good. It tells us that you should keep your options open. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Don't rely on one thing or one person. But why? Why do we feel the need to have a plan B? Surely plan A is the best. That's why it's plan A. The thing is that that is what we want to happen. We want plan A to work out, but we fear that it will go wrong. We just don't trust it. Now, when we're talking about meals out, family trips, or bringing down a group of international criminals with just a cigar and a welding torch, that isn't a problem. However, when it comes to how we live our lives in relationship with God, it really is. Micah chapter 5 speaks to us about God's plan and challenges the Israelites and our desires for a plan B. Micah challenges our lack of trust in God. He will tell us three important truths. God has a plan, even when times are bad. God has a plan, 
trust it. God has a plan. Let's live it. So let's start with point number one. God has a plan even when times are bad. Micah 5 opens with talk of a time to come when a siege is being laid against Jerusalem. The city of God's people, the city of King David, is under threat. Now, I'm sure you've heard of the phrase being under siege before, but I wonder if you've ever really thought about what it actually means. This was a tactic used by an enemy when they came up against a defensive position, usually a castle or a walled city, just like Jerusalem, that they felt they wouldn't be able to break down. They would surround the objective, trapping everyone inside, and they would wait for the people inside to give up. When you put it like this, it sounds like a fairly simple, painless sort of way of doing battle. But it wasn't. A city under siege was overcrowded with people and animals. They would quickly run out of food and start fighting amongst themselves over whatever scraps were left. Disease would spread rapidly, killing the young and the old. But rapidly moving through the whole population, there would have been nowhere to bury people. So they were just thrown over the tops of the city walls or burnt in the streets. The smell of a city under siege must have been appalling. To be under siege was a terrible threat to any city. It was the worst of all options. And surrender and giving yourself up to the enemy was ultimately the only option. At the end of verse 1, we see that Israel's ruler has done just that. He's given himself up. He's surrendered. He is now standing helpless in front of his enemy. We get this picture of his enemy taunting him by slapping him on the face with a stick. And he can do nothing about it. He is an arm's length from his foe and he can't fight back. All hope is lost for the city of God. God's chosen people will be conquered completely. This is the people who God took out of Egypt, brought to a promised land, established a great kingdom under David. A kingdom that was supposed to last forever. But now look at it. Jerusalem, the very heart of Israel, the seat of King David... And his line will be torn from them. It will be game over. What must the people Michael was speaking to have thought of this? It must have sent a shiver down their spines at least. You can imagine Mr. and Mrs. Jerusalem going home after hearing this and talking things over. Is this really what's going to happen? How are we going to manage this? And What's going to happen to the kids? Has God forgotten his promise to us and King David? Has God lost control? I wonder if you ever feel sort of under siege as a Christian. As a Christian, you can sometimes feel surrounded by the world. People mocking and taunting you at school, waiting for you to give up. Waiting for you to realize that standing firm against the tide of atheism or Islam or just plain worldliness is pointless. You feel tired of resisting. You you can't beat them, so, well, why not join them? Then life would be so much easier. Sack off Sunday AM. Dump small group. Get drunk. Have sex. When times are tough, it can be very hard to trust what God has told us. Maybe he's just got fed up with the world and left us to it. It doesn't seem like God is in control anymore. Well, let's listen to the rest of what Micah has to say. But I just want to skip verse 2 for a second and look at the beginning of verse 3. 
Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until a time when she who is in labor bears a son. Now, that's the NIV translation. But the ESV uh, makes the first part a bit clearer. Popped it up there for you. Therefore, he shall give them up until a time when she who is in labor has given birth. Can you see the important point here? The Israelites are going to suffer. They will appear to have been abandoned by God. But they have not been taken from him. God has given them up. But only until his appointed time. He is still in charge. He is still in control. He has always been in control. No matter what it may look like sometimes. And his plan still stands. It hasn't changed. Remember, God has a plan even when times are bad. That's our first point. It can be really tempting to lose faith in God when things are tough, when the world seems in chaos. But we must remember that God is still there and he is still in control. We're going to take a few minutes now to break into our, into our little groups and take a uh, time to consider these questions. When does it look like God has lost control in your life and in the world? What is the temptation when you think this? Have a little read of uh, John's Gospel there, chapter 19, verses 28 and 30. Think about, did Jesus have his life taken from him? Who thought they were in control? Who looked like they were in control? And who was actually in control? And then, could this help you view really tough times a bit differently? So you want to spend a few minutes thinking about that. Right, so God has a plan even when times are bad. So if God is still in charge, if he has a plan, what on earth is he up to? Well, here comes our second point. God has a plan, trust it. We're going to go back to verse 2 now, which we skipped a little earlier. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Micah tells the people that this disaster will not be the end. A ruler will be coming. One who will rule over all of Israel. Do you understand how important that is? You need to remember that at this time the people of God had split into two kingdoms. Uh, there was one in the north and one in the south. They are divided. This ruler is going to sort that out. He's going to heal the broken relationships of the people with each other. What great news for them to hear. But sorry, what was that you said just before? He's coming from, from where? From, from Bethlehem. Where's that? The king comes from Jerusalem, doesn't he? To understand what that would have sounded like to the people of Jerusalem, the king coming from Bethlehem, imagine that the people of London have been told that the city is going to be destroyed. The houses of parliament will fall. Our government will be overthrown and life will be turned upside down as we are conquered by the French. We'll all have to eat croissant for breakfast, snails for lunch and frog's legs in garlic sauce for tea. We'll also have to cheat at sport. 
But then someone says, don't worry, there will be a new leader coming to save us. He'll make everything right again. There will be chips, roast beef, and fair play. And this magnificent leader, well, he'll come from Duddeth. Not from the capital city, London, the seat of power. Not from Oxford or Cambridge, great seats of learning. Not even Manchester or Birmingham, cities which are just big and important. Duddeth, a small village outside of Barnsley, a place most of them have never heard of, a place which is famous for nothing, a place nobody would miss. What kind of rubbish plan is this? This is how crazy the king coming from Bethlehem would probably have sounded to most of the people Micah was speaking to. But this is often how God does things. His plans often look, well, a bit rubbish to the world. Just look at the crucifixion. Does that really look like a victory to you? God chooses the weak, the small, the unexpected to bring his plans to fruition. And in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, Paul explains why. We've got 1 Corinthians there, chapter 1, 27, 29. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. God uses the small, the weak, the insignificant to make sure it is clear that he is in charge, that he is making the plan work, not any of us. Now, whilst many of the people who Michael was speaking to would have forgotten their scriptures, some would have remembered something about Bethlehem. They would have remembered someone else who was raised up unexpectedly, a young shepherd boy that nobody thought was important. Bethlehem was actually where David was born. This is where God's king came from before, and it's where he shall come from again. God's plan for an eternal kingdom is still intact. His plan for an everlasting king still stands. God has not forgotten his promise, his promise from long ago. His people may have forgotten, but he hasn't. David was a shadow of the greater king to come. God himself will bring forth another king from Bethlehem. Do you see that bit for me in the text? That is God in charge. But the king isn't coming just yet. As we saw in verse 3, there is some waiting to be done. Micah tells the people that they will have to wait, enduring their suffering patiently, waiting for a special baby to be born. But when he comes, wow, will it have been worth the wait? Just take a look now at verses 4 to 6. This king will care for his people like a shepherd cares for his flock. But he'll have all the strength and power of God as well. Even when the superpowers of the world attack, that's what the bit about the Assyrians and the land of Nimrod are about. He will have ultimate power over the whole earth. He will have more than enough power to defeat them. That's what the bit about seven shepherds and, and eight commanders is about. He will have ultimate power of the whole earth. And he will use it to bring peace. There will be suffering and troubles whilst the battle rages. But after the battle with the world is won, we will have peace through our king. 
As we look further on in this chapter of Micah, we see a little more of how this battle is to be won. And we learn something amazing. It isn't just God's king who will be winning the battle against the world. It's his people as well. They, we, will come in his power and change the world. Remember, we talked about God using the weak and unexpected to bring about his plans. Look around you now. Do we honestly look like people who could change the world? Verse 7 tells us how God's people will be refreshing, like the dew on the grass, like a shower of rain. I wonder if you've ever stepped out into the garden on a summer morning or after a summer shower of rain. The whole place seems to have come alive. The grass, which was tired and brown, starts to green up. The flowers glisten with the rain on them. And tired, drooping leaves perk up. Everything comes alive again and looks as it should do. This is the effect God's people, we, will have on our tired and weary world. A world which chases after more money whilst others starve. A world which thinks that what you look like matters more than how you treat others. A world that chases after the next desire of their hearts but has forgotten how to rest and enjoy what God has given them. God's people will bring new life to the land and to the people through the power of God, with their example of paradise living, our example of living in a relationship with God. But we don't just stop there. Look at verse 8 for another amazing picture of God's people. They are unstoppable, like lions rampaging through sheep. Now, I haven't seen this happen, but you have to admit, it sounds like a mismatch. I did actually have a look on YouTube to see if there was a video of a lion attacking a lamb. And there was. Um, But it came with an 18 rating, and you had to register to see it. So I think we can assume the result wasn't pretty, and I'm not going to show it. Um, I think the closest thing I got to seeing something similar is playing Zoo Tycoon. Um, Have you ever played Zoo Tycoon? Uh, it's good fun. You're supposed to keep the carnivores in cages on their own. But for fun, I've occasionally picked up a lion and dropped it into the penguin enclosure. The penguins disappear very quickly. As the verse tells us, no one can rescue them. We will be victorious over the world. Of that we can be certain. With God's king before us, nothing can stand in the way of his ultimate triumph. It may not feel like it some days... When your friends turn against you, or you're trudging down to Sunday a.m. in the cold and the rain instead of being tucked up in your warm bed. But we are on the winning team with the greatest team captain there ever will be. And see in verse 9, it says, Your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies, and all your foes will be destroyed. So, who is this king? Who is it who has come out of Bethlehem? Who is it who has been promised from long ago? Who is it that describes himself as our shepherd? Who has defeated the greatest enemy of all? Death. Jesus is God's king. Jesus is God's plan. He always has been and always will be. God's plan is working itself out through history. It's a great plan, a certain plan. And it's a plan we can and should trust. That's our second point. God has a plan. Trust it. So what have we learned from Micah so far? We've learned God has a plan, even when times are bad. And that God has a plan, trust it. 
So if we know those two truths, what will that actually look like in our lives? Let's go on to the final point. God has a plan. Let's live it. God's plan is best. It is plan A. It results in victory for him, peace for us, and for the world. There is no plan B. So if we know this, why then do we keep looking for a plan B? Why do we keep looking for a backup just in case? I think deep down, we don't believe it's the best plan. Deep down, we want to be in control. We don't like following someone else's plan. We want our own plan, plan B. I guess it's because perhaps deep down, down where we think things we don't tell other people, we don't trust God completely. But Micah has something to tell us about our plan Bs. He tells us what God thinks of these plans and what he's going to do to them. Micah lists those things that God's people had come to rely upon and tells us that God is going to destroy them all because they have no place in his plan. Now I might know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I don't have a chariot or a city. I don't practice witchcraft or bow down to an Asherah pole, whatever that is. What on earth has this to do with me in the 21st century in Sheffield. Well, let's look at the things God's people have been relying on instead of God and and see how they fit in with us. We'll start with the horses and chariots. Well, that's about relying on our own power, not on God. The Israelites had come to rely upon their own military power to protect them from harm. These are apparently the, the equivalent of an attack helicopter back then. Now, I haven't got military power But when things get tough, the first thing I do is turn to me, to what little power and might I have. Work harder, run faster, think better. Are you like that? When you face a difficult problem, do you pray about it and ask God for help? Or do you charge on through with your brain or your brawn? When exams loom and you worry, do you turn to your Bible? Or do you turn to your textbooks? Do you drop out of your small group or Sunday AM to have more time for training when that important football match is coming up? Relying on our own power and not God's is rejecting his plan. The Israelites had also forgotten that it was God who had saved them in the past when there had been battles to win against enemies. I keep forgetting that God sent Jesus to save us, to save me, And he is who we should be relying upon, who I should be relying upon to save us from our sins. I'm always tempted to work harder, to be good enough and and do the right thing. Not because I am saved, but to try and earn my salvation. That's a rejection of God's plan. Jesus dying for our sins. What else have the Israelites been up to? Cities and strongholds. Well, that's about building your own security, not relying on God. Where do you go when things are tough? The Israelites ran to their cities for security. Me? I run to the bank. Money can buy you out of almost any problem. When we set off on a family holiday, the last thing I do as we sit in the car on the driveway is turn to Anne, my wife, 
and check that we've both got a bank card on us. That way, I think we'll be fine no matter what happens. How wrong is that? What does that say about where my security lies? Being prepared is one thing. Putting your trust in money is quite another thing altogether. Now, you may not have money, but there will be probably something that you're relying on to get you out of trouble. Maybe it's your parents or your family. They're always good to run to when things go wrong because they'll always back you up with money or food or a roof over your head. Whatever it is that you're relying on, it's getting in the way of God's plan, relying only on him for security. Witchcraft and spells, well, that's about trying to control the future and not trusting God's plan. The Israelites could easily find people ready to cast spells to control people or perhaps find a love potion to get that boy or girl they really wanted. They wanted to take control of the future. Now, there are still people today prepared to offer you the chance to use the spiritual powers of this world to get what you want. Never forget that the devil and demons are real and have been given real power. They are prepared to give to you what you want so that they can get what they want. And they always want to take you away from God. Stay well clear of anything that claims to have spiritual power that is not God. That is not our God. However, I expect most of us stay clear of the occult. But we do all try to influence people to our advantage in what we say or do. Choosing who is part of our particular clique at school. Who we make feel welcome and who we let know we really would rather not be around. Encouraging the attention of a particular boy or girl with our words and actions. Always concerned about how these relationships will benefit us in the future. We may not be using witchcraft, but we are seeking power over others because we want to control our future. We don't trust God to look after us, so we try to take over ourselves. Idols in the works of our own hands. Well, this is relying on material things instead of God. The Israelites had forgotten where they'd come from. They'd forgotten that they were great, they were people who were enslaved and had been rescued by God. They looked to the great cities that they'd built, to the work of their own hands, and had started thinking this is what kept them safe. They worshipped the work of their own hands and even made gods of wood and stone, rejecting the living God who had saved them. Now, you'll be reassured to know I don't have a carved idol at home that I worship, but I have got a house that I bought with the money I earned. I've got a car, two actually. I earned them as well. My wife, well, I won her with my wit and charm. And, uh, and I've got a couple of children. That was down to me as well. Though obviously I helped a bit. Uh, and they're pretty good kids because I brought them up properly. I trained them well. Do you see what's happening? Things which God has blessed me with, good things have become something which I believe I earned, that I made, and I reject God. And I decide that I am the creator of good things and worship the work of my hands. And if I want more good things, it's up to me to get them. Do you ever do this? Do you look to those A-star grades, those sporting trophies, or to the stuff you bought with the money you earned and think, I'm in charge, I'm in control, I run my life? Looking to the work of our own hands turns away from trusting God and rejecting his plan. And finally, we come to Asherah poles. Well, this is about following other false religions instead of our God. 
Sadly, many of the Israelites had openly rejected God and decided to worship other false gods. They had turned their backs on him in front of the world. I suspect most, if not all of you here, would call yourselves Christians. That's great. But are you really trusting Jesus? And will you always do that? You may never find yourself turning to Islam or Buddhism, though sadly, some of you might. But will you be tempted away from following the real Jesus by listening to those people who tell you what you want to hear? Jesus is about love. He won't mind if you sleep with your boyfriend as long as you love him. Jesus said he came so that you could have life to the full and he turned water into wine at a wedding. So he doesn't mind if you get drunk. That's just living life to the full. This false Jesus is as dangerous, perhaps even more dangerous, than religions that clearly reject him completely. At least with those you might realize you're rejecting him. Be on your guard for false Christian teaching and make sure you follow Jesus closely. Listen to him by reading your Bible and getting good teaching wherever you may end up in the future. Losing him is losing God's plan and that, as verse 15 tells us, is a fatal mistake. I want you to take some time in your group now. Does that come up? There we go. To have a look at these questions. What things do you rely upon other than God? How do they come between you and God? What will happen if we don't follow God's plan? Who does Micah tell us will rid us, will rid God's people, sorry, of these second-rate plans? And how can you start to live like God is your only plan for life? So, none of these second-rate plans belong in our lives if we trust God. If we trust his plan for the world, then there is no plan B. If we trust him, we must live like we trust him. But you know what? If we keep trying to be better, then we're back to relying on our own power and not God. Micah tells us that the change in God's people will come from God. He does the destroying, not us. He changes us. This process of changing is what is sometimes called sanctification. Us changing to become more like Jesus. We need to pray to God to help change us. To help rid us of our reliance on secondary plans, on our plans. We need to ask God to help us to trust his plan and change our lives to match our hearts. That's our third point. God has a plan. Let's live it. So we've had the three points. God has a plan, even when times are bad. God has a plan, trust it. God has a plan, let's live it. I know I don't always live according to these three truths. I usually turn to money or my own abilities. But reading this passage has challenged me to change, to ask God to change me. In a moment, I'm going to close with a prayer. But if you've been challenged by this as well, take a few moments now, just in the quiet, to say sorry to God for not trusting his plan for choosing your own plan over his.